Boom, episode 110 of the Talking Bollocks podcast brought to you by Gowloud. It's me, 30 Flower. It's me, COB. And this week we're joined by... Sharon Lambert. Yeah, whenever yeah. you're ready there, Sharon. <laughs> yeah. The anticipation, I the long pause. I thought you were going to introduce me. I didn't, you didn't tell me all the stuff uh, we, myself. We do, uh, but yeah, some people got us, some people don't. Uh, what's happening? How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thank you very much for inviting me up. Thanks for coming up. Mm. After coming a long old distance. I did, all the way up from Cork. Yeah, I love the way that you didn't introduce yourself as Dr. Sharon Lambert. You're not one of those people. No, I'm not. No, I, uh, but, but I it am. is a job. No. I know, but like that's a title, but you know why some people are like, oh yeah, I'm a doctor and you're like, oh, I'm only asking your name. It'd be like me going, oh, introduce yourself, Calvin, and you going, oh, podcast host Calvin O'Brien. Is that what it's like? Kind of, but I didn't go to college for seven years to do podcasting, so. Yeah, but here you are. Yeah. Uh, is yeah. it seven years to become a doctor? It is, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it would take about seven years to get a yeah. doctorate, yeah. 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 I am very proud of it, by the way. No, you should be. No, yeah. definitely you should be. I am, because I'm from a council estate, working class family, and it is not that easy to go to university mm. from a council estate. Yeah. Um, and it's a lot hard. It's getting harder. Um, Like when I went, I went as a mature student and there was you know, a good few grants available for people who are from socioeconomically difficult backgrounds. <clears throat> but they're, they're, those grants are not as good as they used to be. So it's an awful lot harder to go to university now. Mm. We'll get into all that. Right, let's get into a show. We'll jump into zingers first before we go anywhere, Sheridan, yeah? Yeah. Do you know what a zinger is? I know what your zingers are, yeah. Oh, good luck. Right, so what was the zinger of the last week? Would you... I'm terrified. I'm absolutely No, terrified. no, no. This is a, this is a handy one, Sheridan. This is a handy so... one. <laughs> Right. Call the singer now and then I'll get the result. Yeah, trapped in a shopping centre okay. for 24 hours, right? Yeah, I've would, dreamt about this. Go on. Would you rather be trapped with a silverback gorilla in there or was it five or three? Five. Or five black mambas? Snakes. You know the snakes? Oh God. See, these are deeper than people think. See, when you ask me something like that, my head just goes. They're probably both going to kill me. Yeah, I'd say so, yeah. Like, both are more than capable of killing you. Yeah, let's pretend they're not friends. I think I'm going to go with the snakes because they're... Are they the ones that, like, wrap around your neck and smother you? Which would be better than getting ripped apart. I'm not sure if they do. That's a a constrictor, a bowel constrictor does that. But I think a few snakes do that. I'm not too sure. I'm going to go with snakes because it sounds like a quicker death. But you don't have to die, like, you know what I mean? You can't survive. I'm going to die! <laughs> I'm five foot three. The goal is to stone. survive. I'm going to die. <laughs> a lot of people went deep in this. People are uh, writing to me, said if I was in the Jervis shopping centre in town, they'd run down to the basement because the whole basement is a Tesco. Let the gorilla get in there. He'll start eating the gaff down and they just run up to the top floor and wait for him to uh, be finished to see out the 24 hours. And then somebody else said they'd go to Stephen's Green shopping centre Go into the toilets because it's 20 cent to use the toilet in Stephen's Green Shopping <laughs> Centre and the gorilla definitely doesn't have 20 cent. I must check my mood because I went straight to death. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <What's laughs> Back yourself, <laughs> Yeah, I'll have a chat with myself on the way home. They're great answers though. 53% of people would rather be there with the snakes. 47% would rather be there with the... That is very close. Very close. I think I'd pick the snakes. Um, Sheridan, have you got a zinger for us? Kylie or Danny? Not a bad show. Not a bad show. <laughs> Not a bad show. I'd pick Kylie. Why? Better singer. 
I'm, I, I don't even know. Danny, I'm just going to go against Carlton. Danny, yeah? That's his thing for next week, yeah? Who would you go with? Danny. Danny, yeah? Why? Oh. The underdog. Because she's constantly living in her sister's shadow? Yeah. She had to get in a career over, didn't she? Sean yeah, the X Factor yeah. and all. Yeah. There you yeah. go, yeah. Right. Someone sent me a zinger. Bit deep than usual, but I think it's a good one, right? Would you rather grow up the way we grew up in the areas we grew up in, the environments we grew up in, yeah? Or if you could change it to grow up in a wealthy environment <laughs> and a wealthy area, would you do so? I had this conversation with somebody yesterday. So it's a great thing, I think. Give you a little bit to think about. I I would rather grow up where I grew up um, because I think it gives me more empathy and understanding of the difficulties that people experience. But I also wish there were things I had known then that I know now. And I would love for every working class person to know what social capital is. Because I think if you knew what social capital was, you'd be really mad. What is social capital? So, you know when people say things like, do you remember when you were younger and you thought, and people say, oh, when you grow up, you can be anything. Mm. Yeah. And that's not actually true. Because... And they'll say, oh, you know, all these people that are self-made, like, oh, you know, look at all the money Donald Trump has or Richard Branson or whatever. Anybody can have that. And that's not true. No, it's not. It's not because it doesn't matter how hard you work. Like if I've worked as a cleaner, nobody works harder than a cleaner and you earn minimum wage. Um, and you're, you're going to you get stuck there because you don't have social capital and social capital is connections to people who have money. So <clears throat> I gave this example one time. I went somewhere with my, my children and somebody recognized me because I work in a university and they, oh, Sharon, how are you? Blah, blah, blah. And they gave the, my kids uh, free hot chocolate. And we came out and they said to me, oh, are you famous? And I said, no, but when you work in a university, you meet, a not, I could meet hundreds of people. And they said, oh, you know, people are really nice and they're really kind. And I said, yeah, most people are very nice and very kind. And I said, but I got those hot chocolates because I work in a university. And I said, there's, there could have been a woman in the queue behind me who's working as a cleaner. She won't get free hot chocolate and she earns less than me. Mm. So once you start to move up along a ladder, you get easier access to jobs, <clears throat> easier access to money and easier access to people. So when you're in a working class area, you're sold this story that if you work really hard, you can have whatever you want. And there's, that will only happen to a tiny, tiny, like pure luck will get you that. But actually most people work really, really hard, but there's a ceiling that they can get to. So if you take, for example, if you do a young one doing, I'm a psychologist. And if you had uh, one, your, your, if you do a cousin or a niece or a nephew or brother and sister and said, I wanted to be a psychologist and you're living in a council state, how many psychologists do you know? Mm. None. So now you can say, oh, actually, my buddy, Sharon, is a psychologist. I'll see if she can take you for TY for a week. Now, that's social capital. So that person's more likely now to become a psychologist because you know someone who is a psychologist. And that's social capital. And the problem with not knowing about it is when you're, when you're growing up and you, you're just told this thing that if you work really hard, you can be whatever you want and it's not true, then you believe that you're just not as good as anybody else because you stay stuck. 
Does that make sense? It does. Sorry, I didn't want to get into no. really deep now straight no, away. No, 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 no. It's mad because I've been thinking about this, right? And it's when you look at, like, you know, the billionaires of the world and the people with the social capital, what you're saying. And it's like there is a glass ceiling. Like, you'll never break into that. And you look at people who are, like, leading in political parties and people who are running for presidencies and the royal families and stuff like that. Like, you know, the Hardy and Meghan had sold as, like, oh, like, this fella was destined to be a prince and she always wanted to be a princess. But, like, she comes from wealth as well. She wasn't, like, it's not as if you went to, like, the ghetto somewhere and just found her and says, I want you to be my wife. You know, these people are in the social hierarchy. And it's, like, the millionaires out there now they inherited most of what they have as well. It's generational wealth is there and a certain amount of families, particularly in Ireland, they come from a certain stature. So like their granddads and great granddads were big wealthy businessmen and that family name's passed down and these people are getting these opportunities and you can look at like some of the groups around Ireland and some of these companies that are run by third and fourth generation and like the sons and grandsons just getting opportunities for the sake of just being related. Mm. They've no qualification, just get handed this and then that's passed on and you're like, how do you break into that? You know what I mean? And like, how how do you become a multi-millionaire? How do you climb there? How do you get this like legacy then? And I was on the bus, so when my phone was broke again, I know it broke a few weeks ago, but my phone's broke again. <coughs> so I have no phone out the last couple of days, so I'm just alone with my thoughts a lot. And I was on the bus on the way in and I was thinking about it. And it's weird, but one name that popped into my head was Conor McGregor because he... Out of nowhere is that again like this nine figure sum of money in his family now that's just there forever. And I was like, he's gonna be one of them like his name is gonna be one of them families now in 50, 60, 70 years time. He's at the establishing himself in that social capital bracket now. And you're right, there is a glass ceiling, but I think if you can walk hard, you'll reach a limit and you'll reach a peak. But what that does then that sets the bar for the next generation. And eventually their peak will be bigger than yours. So just because there's a peak for you doesn't mean that reaching it is a failure. Reach it. And you see, I think it's changing. I think that that glass is changing because of things like what you're doing. If I listen to the radio or, or watch television or anything like that, and, and when I was growing up, th there's not people like us on the television or on the radio. Um, but that's changing because of things like social media and podcasts. So what you're doing is you're giving information to people where there's an awful lot of gatekeeping going on in relation to in, in, in information. Like if you even think about when you go to university, when I went first, you're kind of walking around going, I have no idea what half of these people are talking about. And an awful lot of people from working class communities, when they come to university, it's nearly always as mature students. That's what I did. And a lot of people drop out actually because they don't feel like they fit in. So the, you're you're kept like that thing about social capital that that should be taught in primary school because actually the impact it has on your self esteem if you think that you're not good enough rather than understanding it's not that you're not good enough it's the systems and structures around you that don't allow you to flourish and thrive. So it is changing, and that leads into things like cancel culture, um, which I don't think I think it's just nonsense stuff because. The people who are in power, it suits them or people who have, who have money and people who have power, it suits them to have an underclass or a working class because who's going to iron your shirts? If they, Who's going to make your coffee? Who's going to clean your house? So you have to keep a certain amount of people down. 
And the way you do that is by making sure that they don't have access to education. And that's changing because people are getting information. And that's why I don't like the, the kind of the cancel culture thing, because if you look at it, if I say, oh, I couldn't get into such and such and such a restaurant and say, oh, look, yeah, look, he's trying to cancel that restaurant now. And it's not about that. It's about trying to keep your voice down. So people are throwing out the word cancel culture. And the only reason they're doing that is because they want you to keep your voice down because now we have voices that we never had before because people are on social media and people have podcasts. It has changed the power. Who has the power to speak and who is given the information? Does that make sense? It does, yeah. yeah. Because I think about this a lot. <laughs> yeah, no, so do we, especially on, in, in the realm of social media because there's like a topic will arise and there's only one right answer. No matter what, there's one right answer. And then if you think differently to that, you're wrong and you're cancelled and you're you're a bigot and you're this or you're that and you're like, can I not express my opinion to that? Especially if it's coming from a good place, it's not coming from a place of hate. Mm. You're like, I disagree with this topic here, what you've said. And you're like, no, you're wrong. And you put down and you're like, is this not supposed to be what like social media is for? I'm expressing my view. You've expressed your view. I express mine. We don't agree on it, but can we not discuss that? But no, you're, you're cancelled then. You're, you're sure up like... And let's deplatform this person. And you're like, but how many people have actually ever been deplatformed? People are saying, oh, you know, Jeremy Clarkson, and he's been, you know, cancelled. I don't know how many times Jeremy Clarkson has been cancelled in my lifetime. Do you know what I mean? Mm. He will be back with another show somewhere else. Yeah. You know, people who are in positions where they're connected come back somewhere else. Um, if a large number of people say what you just said was shit thing to say and you keep going with it, then people vote with their feet. I'm entitled to do that. Mm. I don't have to shop in your shop if I don't like you. I'm not cancelling you. I'm just choosing what I want to do for me. And if a whole bunch of other people do that, that's our choice. Yeah. But very few people in power, who, a lot of people who shout about cancel culture are the ones who are never actually cancelled. The reason why you brought up the cancel culture, you said that you heard us talking about being refused from establishments. Yeah. And you said that, like, oh, people might be saying that, well, we're trying to get these places cancelled. Oh, I'm not trying to get anywhere cancelled. I couldn't give a bollocks. Each to their own, like, you know what I mean? We've but, never actually named dropped either. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing what we're trying to highlight is that there's places you have the right to refuse anybody, and I think that's perfectly fine. But usually when you see places getting called out for refusing certain types of people, they come out and they have to address it. And you're like, oh, Grant, but they never address it when it's the likes of us. And I'm like... That's a bit shitty for us because like we don't do anything. We're we're there just as much a good time as everybody else. And uh, you heard me on the radio last week, so something I need to call out as well because I got called out on it. Um, I was on the radio last week on the Two Johnny Show, and I was giving examples of when I was refused uh, from place in town. And I said I wouldn't be confident heading into town the weekend again anywhere. But I was in town the weekend then. And I was walking past the Camden and the lads in the Camden are always sound to us. They do let us in. They know us on the door now. And they said, you're on the radio telling everyone we, you're never going anywhere. We always let you in. So I want to give a shout out to the boys there. Because, yeah. uh, Cause well, the only, Camden. The only <laughs> reliable place. I don't even know where it is. Yeah, yeah Camden Street. <laughs> anywhere else, it's kind of risky. You're growing up saying, oh, it's 50-50, you know what I mean? Mm. Calvin went somewhere the other day. I don't even know if I should say, but Calvin went somewhere the other day that I got refused from a couple of months ago and he rang me saying, I'm going to this spot. And I said, don't go there, I said, because they refused me for wearing a pair of Nike shorts and a T-shirt during the summer. And I was in a tracksuit when he said, I was and on the way. Like. He was in a tracksuit and I said, don't go there, I said, because you'll probably you'll probably get refused and then don't give them the custom either. But uh, you ended up rocking up 
in a tracksuit with a dog and got in. No yeah. problem. So the like I've no problem with dogs. I love dogs, but I think it's mad that a pub allows dogs in, but they don't let you in if you're wearing night shorts. Sign on like the door says no tracksuit. I remember once when I was uh, when I was pregnant with my first child, and I was overdue, and it was I was feeling like crap, and. Uh, my other half said to me, oh, do you know, we'll go out for the day or whatever. We went for a drive and uh, we were halfway. He said, we'll go and get something to eat. And we were halfway there and I was like, I'm going to get sick. I'm going to get sick. So I got, got out of the car and I, I didn't get, I didn't get to do it in time. And I got sick all over my clothes. And I had a black bag of clothes in the, in the boot for a charity shop or something. And I just, there was this, you know, the long dresses, the kind of jersey dresses or whatever. I pulled that on and then I tied my hair up in a ponytail and I was crying and I was like, oh, Jesus, I feel so sorry. But like, oh. Anyway, we arrived to the restaurant and we were walking up along and I felt like crap. And uh, your man at the thing, he kind of looked me up and down and he went, um, have you got a reservation? And I was like, no. And he said, oh, yeah, it's uh, bookings only. And I was like, OK. And I, like, I couldn't have felt more crap now if I tried and we turned around and we were walking away and another couple came in behind us and I heard them saying, we don't have a reservation, but we were wondering if you had a table. Said, oh, yeah, no, we don't do reservations at lunchtime. Mm. And uh, I was walking out to the car and I just cried then the whole way home because I just felt like crap anyway. Um, and then, I don't know, about four years later, or four, I don't know, a good few years later, my mother was taking the kids out somewhere for the day. And she sent me a picture of her and the kids in that place and I texted back and I was like, they're not allowed in there. <laughs> <laughs> We're not good enough. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, ladies and gentlemen, I remember going to town one night years ago. Um, uh, somebody who was related to me was down and he was staying in my house and he's like got an awful lot of tattoos and he doesn't drink at all. And he said, uh, Oh, look, if you want to go for a couple of drinks, the, the jazz festival was on. He said, like, I'll drive you in and you can have a couple of pints and drive home or whatever. So I went in with, with him and my sister and we came to the first place and they looked him up and down. And they said, um, you've had too much to drink. You're not coming in. <laughs> I and know I the said, feeling. Yeah. I know the and exact I said, feeling. Yeah, I said, he doesn't actually drink. Mm. And he, uh, he said, uh, you're not coming in either because of the mouth on you. <laughs> and uh, I said, look, I said, you're you're. This, clearly you're discriminating against him because he's got tattoos the city does not drink he has not consumed any alcohol and he said don't you start telling me about the law blah 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 so then my sister was like just leave it so then about 15 minutes later my sister came back I was still arguing with your man she said like I'm down here having a drink and you were up here fighting with this fellow we're not even trying to get in there anymore <laughs> just let it go but like I see it all the time like there's certain shops and stuff you wouldn't go into anyway because you don't feel comfortable. It doesn't matter what you're wearing. Even if you're all dressed up and you, you didn't open your mouth, you just feel like they're going to follow you around anyway. Do you ever get that? Yeah, all the time. And then yeah. you feel so judged. We won't name right? them. We won't name no, we won't them. Name shops them. I won't go into. But certain them. shops yeah. that you go into and like even the floor staff, they'll be like very judgmental of you and you're like, where are you getting the right to like look down on me just because I'm in here dressed this way and you're prim and proper because it's your job. You're looking down on me. That really annoys me. Yeah, and like... I think there's a lot of people that don't understand what that's like. So even if you take, you know, I work in universities and there are people in Cork City and I'm going to give a shout out to the two Norries who you've had on your show. But they've spoken about that, about when they were growing up and that you walk past a university that's in your city. You walk past it every single day, but you never step past the gates. Mm. And I get contacted a lot by people who want to go to university and they'll say, look, I'm really interested in doing this and um, will you meet me? They won't meet me in the university. I meet them outside somewhere for a coffee. 
And then I say, look, I'll meet you again now in a couple of weeks' time and then we'll meet at the gate. And I say, come on in. And they go, oh, you know, I've got absolute, there's, there's thousands of people walking around in there. Nobody's going to pay any attention to you. And we're walking around and you can feel that they're uncomfortable in their skin. And I'm like, nobody here looks you don't look different mm, than anyone no one, else. And that's the thing, no one really cares. I just don't know the face. And that's the thing is about that internal stuff. Yeah. I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough. And that comes back to the creating communities mm. where you're made to feel like you're not good enough because somebody else has the power. And like that's why I think the kind of thing that you're doing and what the Tunaris are doing is really important because it is giving a voice to those communities. And the other thing that you're doing is you're bringing information to your community that they might not normally get. So, like, we, you know, we did a, myself and one of my masters, he's graduated now, master's student, Nisha Krilta Adob, actually. He came to Cork to do his, his master's and we did it on podcasts and mental health. And what we found was that there was a class divide. So people who had lower levels of education and earned less money were more likely to report having a mental health issue, um, which is not a surprise. Um, but they were listening to podcasts for different reasons. So they were listening to podcasts to learn about themselves and to learn about others. Whereas people who had a higher level of education and more money were listening to podcasts for entertainment. Mm. So like one of the things as well is sometimes when you're doing a survey, you have this box at the bottom that says any other comments, you always put it in, but nobody ever puts that in there. We had something like 40 pages uh, of comments from that. And it was all about people saying, I didn't know this and I feel less isolated or I feel I don't feel, especially around addiction and mental health. I don't feel so ashamed. Um, you know, a lot of stuff around trauma. Um, I never knew that this thing that happened to me was related to my addiction. And now I don't have to be so hard on myself and I can have compassion for myself. So they're the kinds of things that if communities knew, because, you know, there's still so much stigma about addiction. For me, addiction is a mental health problem. It's a mental health problem. Same as anxiety, same as depression. It's just a way you express your mental health. But there's people in addiction who think that they're bad people. I meet people all the time who are in addiction, particularly people who are in homelessness. And they'll say, and when they learn about the trauma stuff, they'll say, I thought I was, I was just a scumbag. Like, which you're not like, look at all of that stuff. Like most people wouldn't have been able to survive what you've just described to me. And yet here you are still standing. Okay, yeah, you're using heroin or whatever you're using. That's, just, you're, you're, that's surviving. You're surviving. Like other people wouldn't have been able to cope with what you went through. Not everybody who's in addiction has experienced trauma, but an awful lot of people in addiction have. And if, if people who are, who are in addiction had that information, they'd be kinder to themselves and they'd be much more likely to go and get help because they believed that they deserved it. Yeah, and I think a lot of people don't really understand as well that the drug that these people are using is actually their crutch and probably kept them alive for a certain period of time, you know. And it's not actually the drug, it's what's going on in their head and what they've experienced in life. Like there's an underlying problem somewhere and if they address the underlying problem, then they can address the drug use and then they can go off it, you know. But I think people see other people in addiction and just think junkie or this or that, yeah, you know. That word. It's a mm. word that we hate as well and we speak about it all the time and it's like, it's just a degrading word, you know what I mean? But I think 
Shadnoy, I, I seen you talking as well on another podcast that I listened to before. I think it was actually on the two nights, and uh, you're against a few terms like junkie. Obviously, I think we all should be against, but even the term addict and the term clean in recovery, you don't really like. I don't like the word clean mm. because what's the opposite of it? <laughs> totally. Yeah. Mm. So when I meet people who are in recovery and they say I'm clean, I'd never say I have a problem with that word. If that's the word you use and you're comfortable with that, that's fine. But I don't want to see a, a court report where it says um, the solicitor stated that their client is now clean. Mm. That's not a word a solicitor needs to use. That's not a word a psychologist should be using. If somebody wants to use that term about themselves, that's fine. But actually, other people shouldn't be using that word because it does suggest the opposite. Yeah. Um, for me, people are drug and alcohol free and, and recovery as well means different things to different people not everybody who's in recovery is drug and alcohol free yeah. there are some people whose experiences have been so horrendous that actually they might you know still do something in the evening time before they go to bed in order to get them through the night but actually they're not harming anyone else they're not harming themselves and their life is is so stable and they're so content now um so that person would be described as as not clean, but actually they are in recovery because that's their recovery. Does yeah, that make sense? Definitely. Yeah. I don't dislike the word addict. It's just that what I don't like about it is is if somebody says he's an addict or she's an addict, it's like as if that's all they are. Mm. Like if you're in a, if you're an addiction, you're you're a mother or a father or a brother or a sister. You're a, a, a an aunt or an uncle. You know, you're all of these different things. You're not just an addict. And one of the things that worries me. It's not so much people who are in the space, you know, if you're if if you're in recovery or, or you're in addiction, or you're using those words, it's fine. It's people who are not in that. So if I'm using the word, if I say, oh, there's so and so and he's an addict and I'm talking to people who know nothing about addiction. What does what do they think when I that say that sense, word? Yeah. Mm, yeah. Or if I say he's clean or he's not clean, what do they think when I say it's not about the communities of people who use drugs? And the language they use, it's about everyone else around them. It absolutely changes the way people see you. Yeah, no, I think that makes perfect sense. Like, that's, you couldn't have said that any more perfect, I don't think. I think sometimes, like, I would say, if somebody said it to me, I would say, I'm clean X amount of time. And I don't think that there's a problem with that, especially speaking on my own behalf. Yes. You get me? Mm-hmm. But what you said now makes perfect sense to me. But I had a, a couple of people pull me up on it when I say that. They say, no, don't say you're clean. Like, that's wrong and it's just insulting towards everyone else. And I'm like, whoa, this is just where I would use for myself. And if I'm out, and I think as well, people have the best intentions at heart when they say, don't say it like that. But some people can be condescending about it. And then they lose the message also. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, if me saying I'm clean X amount of time can inspire someone else mm. to get clean, mm. and then you're pulling me up on a certain mode. Yeah, what just lives in the whole message yeah. now. Yeah, it's a message so of encouragement. Yeah, it's it's about separating it. For me, it's about separating it out. Mm. Um, you you know, because you're you know you're from working class communities. Like when we live in a working class community, we have our own culture, like mm. the way we you know and and cursing and all that. Like that's fine, but but I don't want somebody then from another community or another different to use that then. Mm. You know, like the 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 language is is a, is a good example because people say, oh, you know, oh, Sharon Lambert is great, but she curses a lot. <laughs> like, why are they saying that? I think Lynn Rand's a really good example. I remember one time she put up something. 
I don't know, I wish he'd said something on somewhere, but somebody put up something on, on social media about Lynn Rand saying, I don't know, fuck off or something. And this is a disgrace and tagged a particular university in it. And I hope your students aren't here and blah, blah, blah. And it's just sad, like, that's somebody from outside of a working class community going, get back now into your box there, love. I'm going to put you back into your box. And like, I hear that a lot and it just drives me absolutely mad because sometimes if you're watching television, there's somebody passionate and they say something like, you know, on a chat show or something and they'll say, oh, you know, it was fucking hilarious or whatever. And everyone will laugh. And then when a working class person says it, it's not funny. Why is that like? Mm. It's classism. That's what it is. And it's about keeping people down and you're not good enough. And, and that's the, the the social capital thing again, you know, keeping, making sure that there are particular people who have power and control and there are particular people who don't. Yeah. That's yeah. why I keep raising the bar and not even raising the bar, it's just broadening horizons, isn't it? Showing people like you can do this. There is that, there is that opportunity for you there. Pursue it. Maybe you'll hit a glass ceiling but the person coming behind you will go further than that mm. and you'll be the trailblazer for them. You're going to inspire them. And that, that's that's a conversation we can... I think a lot of people on. on the outside of... Well, not on the outside. I think working class people understand each other, but I think pe- anyone who's not working class doesn't really get it. Because people outside always ask the questions like, so if you're in, let's say, an area of poverty, yeah, and you grow up in a working class area, they they will say, why why do they walk, then come home and they spend their money on drinking drugs instead of saving for the kids' college courses or, or whatever it is? And they'll ask... Questions like that, not really understanding that. Yeah. Like, you can probably speak better than me on this, but, like, there's, like, childhood trauma and... But I'm speaking about the drink. So, people who who earn good money actually spend more money on drugs and alcohol than working class people. Mm. Well, that'd be just disposable income then. They, they have they, more to spend. Yeah, but outside of that, the consequences for them are different. So, if I wanted to go home tonight and have a couple of beers, why am I doing it? So I'm saying, oh, I had a hard day. I'm tired, and I was up in Dublin, and the dubs be driving me mad. So I'm gonna have a couple. Of <laughs> I'll go home now. I'll have a couple of beers, whatever. But if I'm sitting down having a couple of beers because um, I'm because I'm stressed because I'm poor, I, I'm doing it for a different reason. So I have a different relationship, but it's doing something different. It's it's medicating me yeah. as opposed to being escapism. Yeah. Um. And the other thing I I, I wish people everybody should know and you should learn this in primary school too is about actually how your brain works and how you think and the impact of stress on thinking. So if you're really stressed, um, you're, you activate your fight or flight response system, your stress response system. So that's going, ah, um, and when that's happening, then your brain is saying, oh, danger, shit, Sharon, there's danger. You know, you, you like, blood goes to your arms and legs so you can fight or run away. But one of the things that happens is blood flow isn't as active in the front part of your brain, which is, we call the prefrontal cortex. It's your thinking brain. This is the part of your brain that thinks. So do you know if you're driving and something pulls out in front of you and you slam on the brakes, do you course before or after you slammed on the brakes? After. Yeah, because for a split, your brain goes danger. You do not want to be thinking when you're in danger. Your brain knows that because yeah. it's dangerous. So what happens is you slam on the brakes because the blood has gone from here. Yeah. Oh, react, slam on the brakes. Shit, Jesus Christ, what fuck's sake? And you go like that and then you go, oh, I'm okay, I'm grand. Now that's, if you didn't have that, we have that as humans to keep us alive. If you didn't have that, you would get 
kill crossing the road, right? So we have that and that's there to keep us safe. The problem is, is if you, if you've no money and you're really poor and you're really stressed and, and when I say poor, I mean, I'm talking about working. You are working every single day and you're coming home, but you're earning minimum wage and rent and food and energy and child comes home from school and says, I need a tenner for this and a fiver for that. And so and so as parties on on Thursday and I have to go to that as well. So you're constantly going, Jesus Christ, where am I going to come up with the money? So your brain is going, oh, Sharon is really stressed. Danger, danger. Activate. And then you're not thinking as much. So people say, why aren't you saving? Saving what? There's nothing to save. If you were working and you were on minimum wage and you were paying out the same bills as everybody else, there's nothing to save. Why wouldn't you? I was talking to somebody about this the other day. I remember one day going into the shop and all I had left was a tenner. And I wasn't going to have money for, I don't know, about six or seven days. And I was walking around the shop and I was saying, what am I going to do now? And how am I going to make this? What, what do you think I bought with the tenner? Drink. No, I bought a box, a seven euro box of Ferrero Rocher. <laughs> <laughs> ball out, what? Big gold, shiny, nutty balls. <laughs> and brought them home and ate them. And that made me feel better for a few hours. And then you wake up the next morning. Now, if I had spent that on whatever, it's not enough to get through the next six days. Anyway, it didn't matter what way I spent that. I could have bought, you know, a bag of spuds and a tin of beans and, and made that last for two days or something. I still don't have enough money. But then what people do is they judge it and they say, you shouldn't, have, you shouldn't have bought, why didn't you buy something else with that tenor, Sharon? Why? What difference would it have made? I still don't have enough. And there is nothing to save. And when you're in that situation, so you have a very small amount of money because you're on social welfare or you're on, on minimum wage, everything becomes more expensive then. So you're paying for your car insurance every month. You don't pay it out in one go. So because you're paying your car insurance every month, it is more expensive. If you're taxing your car, uh, if you can tax it for 12 months or you can tax it for six months or you can tax it for three months. If you tax it for three months, it's more expensive than if you had the money to pay for 12 months. If you can't afford your electricity and you're using a top-up card, your unit price of electricity is more expensive than it is if you have a direct debit. You are penalised for being, being poor. poor. Yeah, That car tax one, sorry for coming across, it always really baffled me when I was paying my car tax because I broke it down like that before. But that's a tax to the government. That should be a set rate. Like you owe us 200 quid, whether you give us in one lump, four payments or two payments, you owe us 200 quid for your car. It shouldn't be, oh, you're giving us that in four payments. You actually owe us 230. Mm. That's fucking ridiculous. I get it with like subscription services and all like uh, Netflix. You can pay eight euro a month oh, for the year though. It's only 80 quid. So you're more enticed to pay them a big lump up front. But this is a tax to the government. They shouldn't yeah. be looking to profit more money off you based on how you pay them. And this feeds into the social capital thing as well. The more money you have, che the cheaper life becomes. Yeah. The less money you have, the more expensive life becomes. And if you, for example, if I was at home now and if you didn't, uh, you know, your boiler went in your house and you don't have, and the plumber comes and he says, that's, you know, 300 quid. Don't have that. So what are you going to do? Go down to credit union or wherever, get you, and you're paying interest on it. But if I'm living next door and I've got 500 euros in my bank account and the plumber comes and I say, that's 300, I'm done. I'm not spending the next 12 months paying off. And it's that constant you're constantly behind. Um, and people who haven't lived with no money don't understand that. And they'll say, oh, why don't you? So if you're at home and you're miserable and you 
spent your last tenure on, on, you know, a couple of cans to watch television that night and people say, well, why didn't they save that money for their children? Save what? Six euro? What difference is it going to make? Mm. That person's sitting at home now and they're having a Chinese takeaway. And for, for those few hours, they feel a little bit like life is not so shit. Mm. When they wake up in the morning, it's going to be crap again. And I would never take that away from somebody. That's what I think about, you know, when people say, oh, I shouldn't give homeless people money because they're going to spend that on drugs. And I'd be like, so what? They spend that on drugs. They get that bit of escapism. But life is shit. They have to sleep in a doorway tonight. Yeah. But I don't understand that because they say all the time, if everybody stopped giving the money, they wouldn't be able to buy drugs. And you're like, are you for <laughs> real? Like? Where do they think they're going to get what? So they just think they're just going to go, ah, can't oh, get the no. money. Oh, stop. dear. Oh, dear. I, I have no money. Now. Well, stay in a hotel. No, it doesn't work that it's way. It's not how it works. Like, you know what I mean? But people, that's again, people on the outside who like didn't grow up with anybody, don't know anyone personally who struggled with addiction. I don't know anybody personally who was like lived in a one class area with in, in poverty, like, you know mm. what I mean? And the thing about the addiction, you know, if I, I suppose you see it a lot because I get to train up, there's a lot of people around the train station who are very unwell. And if I say, oh, I'm not going to give them that money, like if you're using heroin, you can't, you're going to get sick. Yeah, yeah, actually dependent on it, yeah. You're going to get sick and you're going to feel really bad and you're going to need it. Um, And if you're not actually doing something about arguing with people about access to addiction services, and do you know that Ireland has the third highest rate of drug-related death in, in Europe? Doesn't so, yeah, I'm not surprised. But almost two people per day die in Ireland as a result of a drug-related death. So, like... You know, there's a lot of stuff going on in working class communities at the moment where people are really annoyed that that's the things they should be annoyed about. They should be annoyed about the fact that their brothers and sisters and their mothers and fathers and their aunts and uncles and their sons and daughters are not getting access to addiction services or access to mental health services and they're dying. Mm. Um, and then what it leaves behind is, is a grieving family where society is telling them, your loved one, look, you know. It was their fault. Yeah, it's kind of sad that they died, but, you know, if they hadn't lived the way that they lived, they'd still be here now. And that's mm. just a failure to understand that addiction is a mental health issue. Like, they're the things that we should be annoyed about is, you know, the fact that we have such a high level of, of drug-related death, um, access to housing, um, access to health services, access to mental health, an education system that works for everybody, not just people who are into books. Um and making sure that people who come from marginalised communities can access third level education. Mm. Yeah, but you, you spoke about addiction services. There. I have a friend who was uh, who was struggling uh, like every day with tablets and stuff like mm. that. And he was to go in to uh, one of the addiction services and he was told that he has to get clean. I, I probably shouldn't say clean. Up. No, that's okay. I didn't. I know. I, I didn't. <laughs> Trigger I, yeah. Uh, I didn't roll my eyes because you said the word clean. I rolled my eyes because if people were able to do what your friend has been asked to do, they wouldn't need to go into a treatment yeah, service in the what, first place. Ah! Is that is that a common thing though? Because I said it to him and he was like, I, was, I have to go in, but they're telling me I have to be. I have to say, clean. I don't know another word. Yeah, drug and alcohol free. Yeah, so he has to be drug and alcohol free for like two weeks or something, or ten days before they allow him in. So, yeah, what, so what do they, what are they going to do then to him when he's in there if he's already 10 days clean? I, I personally wouldn't, if I was setting up a residential service in the morning, that's not what I would do because if somebody was able to manage, like one of the things about the trauma stuff, I did work in an addiction service in the community with young people and we had young, there were some young people who would have maybe witnessed something that was, was really bad and they would have had symptoms 
that some people might have described as post-traumatic stress disorder. And then they're using tablets, benzos, um, because that helps to numb the pain. And then, you know, they get in trouble and, and somebody would come along and say, well, they have to be drug and alcohol free. And I go, OK, but if you take that away from them and they start getting flashbacks, what are you going to do to help them? So I, I actually think it's a little bit dangerous to do that. I think it's better to get somebody in. You detox do them in there. Medically managed detox in yeah. there. Yeah. And you know that there's only two things you can die from when you're withdrawn. You won't die from withdrawn from heroin. You'll feel really, really sick, but it won't kill you. But you can die from from withdrawn from benzodiazepines, tablets. Mm-hmm. And you can die from withdrawn from alcohol. They're the only two things that yeah. you can die from. I from never withdrawn. knew that about heroin. I heard about alcohol. I've heard of people going cold talk of alcohol and dying. And mm-hmm. I was like, that like that flew my mind. Yeah, you can I get a seizure. I don't understand them all with heroin. You can, you, and you won't. It doesn't happen with heroin. Yeah, that's yeah. crazy. Yeah, but it happens with tablets. You can get seizures with tablets as well. Yeah. You're not supposed to just stop. It should be managed and it should be tapered down. And the other thing as well is there's some people who use so many tablets and have been using them for a very long time that they need to protract what we call a protracted withdrawal. So they might need to actually withdraw over six months. They might not be able to withdraw over 10 days. Because it might just be too much for their system, depending on how much they were taking. So if I was setting up a drug and alcohol service in the morning that was residential, the first thing is when somebody comes looking for help, you give it to them. Yeah. When they arrive, it doesn't matter what can you say. They're here now. You don't start putting. So in order for you to get help, you need to do A, B, C and D. Sometimes you have windows of opportunity where somebody comes in and they say, today is my day where I want change. Grab it. Grab the person when they're in that window, because if something really bad happens to them tomorrow, they might lose that hope and you mightn't get them in next week. Yeah. So if when they come, it's they've decided this person has decided today is the day I want help. And that's the day you give that person that help. And then you don't ask them to jump through a whole host of hoops. Because if they were able to do those things, they wouldn't be in the situation that they're in now. Don't shame people by saying you need to do this. And if you don't, you're back to the back of the list. You need to, especially tablets. Tablets have an awful impact on your memory. So if I say to you, you can come into my place, but you need to ring me every day at 10 o'clock for five days. If you're taking tablets, there's a good chance that you won't know today is Wednesday or I don't even know what today is. Today's Tuesday. Do you know what I mean? I'm not taking tablets. But if you don't ring me tomorrow because you've forgotten, and then I say, now you're going to be punished. I'm going to put you back to the back of the list and you have to start all over again. And this is to somebody who already feels like they're not worthy. I just yeah. have a big problem with that. It's a failure of the system, isn't it, that really? There's also another thing, Sheridan, as well, where I had a friend who was in, in a in a centre and um, he left like soon after he went in, after like two two weeks or something like that. And he said he left because... There was people who was in there who were in court and they said that they had addiction problems and that they will go to rehab if it shortens their sentence or gets them off for a sentence. So they were going in with actually no intentions of becoming drug and alcohol free in there and they're all surrounded together. Does that make sense? Yeah, where I am do, I- yeah, I do. And I'm thinking about it. For me... Now, that was an issue by him. Now, I just thought I'd ask you about that. For me, if I was the worker, I don't care why they're there as long as they're there and I know that they're safe. And then I'd say to myself, okay, they're not 100% convinced, but maybe if we have them in here and we do a bit of work, 
they might see like why why don't they want have they thought about the con- like here they are they've all these consequences for their drug and alcohol use um how can I get them to shift and think and change so as a worker I, w- I don't care why they're there as long as they're there and they're safe and what can we do with them while they're here and when people leave um sometimes they feel like they've failed and I so, for example, with the trauma stuff, uh, myself and, and one of my, uh, a few of us had a look at levels of childhood trauma and addiction services, right? And one of the things that we found was people with higher levels of trauma had more treatment episodes. So what that means was they had to try it more until it worked. So, like, it's really important that services know that, that if somebody comes in and they stay for three or four weeks and they leave, they haven't failed. That's not a failure. They've come in and they've They've tested it. It's not for them right now. And it's really important that they know that they're not a failure. It just hasn't worked. This wasn't the right fit at the moment. Please come back. And I remember working with a young person once and he used to get in an awful lot of trouble and he'd never really lasted in any school for very long, you know, and he was going into residential treatment. I was like, oh, Jesus, he won't last it might last a day, never mind a week, you know, and he was going to be going in for 12 weeks. But he lasted eight out of 12 weeks. I just thought, I can't believe it. Mm. But anyway, he was asked to leave at week eight because there'd been a bit of an incident, right? Okay, these things happen. And he was coming in and I saw him coming along and I could see that he felt really crap. And nobody, it wouldn't matter what I said to him, nobody felt as bad about what had happened as what he did. And he came in and I said to him, I'm so happy to see you. And I'm so proud of you. You did eight out of 12 weeks. If that was an exam, that'd be like 75%. He was like, oh, I didn't think about it like that. He came out thinking I've, I failed because I didn't get all the way to the end. But you were there for eight weeks. You learned something. You learned something that you're going to be able to use. And I hope that you're going to go back and maybe next time you'll get to 80% or 85%. You don't even have to go for 100% if you don't want to. But like, it's not a failure. And I think all of those things that we know about how the brain develops, the impact of trauma, what tablets actually do to you and your thinking and all that kind of thing. We need to be making sure that services are actually doing what they're supposed to be doing for those people. Mm, yeah. Like that really worries me that somebody would, who's been taking, if somebody's been taking tablets, benzodiazepines, and they've been taking them for a while, withdrawn over 10 days is not great. No. It's not great. And that's what, that's what you said to me, so. I don't know. That's what, I think that's a real strange one. You know what I mean? Get clean for ten thousand. But he, it, what he and, said to you is true. That happens. Yeah, oh, and right, he said, that is how it works. Yeah. And yeah. He, he, I had this conversation with him, a good, honest conversation, and he said to me, he said, because we were talking about like he was saying to me, like I, I'm gonna deal with this, like blah blah blah. But do you want me to go ten days? He said I can't go a day without them. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I actually, that's why he needs. I didn't treatment. know that that was that that could mm-hmm. happen. Yeah, I thought like you go in there too get drug free there are a couple of places I think that do do the the detox where you go in and you detox they're very inside. very hard to get into them. very hard to get yeah. into yeah I, we don't have enough beds no I've mm. had this recently just before Christmas I uh, had a very similar episode to that and again it's not what you know it's who you know yeah and I reached out to a lot of people and I won't go into details I know after listening to this and uh, yeah it was like I was getting all different options and I was, my mind was blown. That's when I heard the detox thing. I was like, that's a bit redundant, isn't it? Mm. Someone's going in there to get off everything. But if they're already off everything, what's the point in going in? Yeah. And, and then and you have places where you go in and they do that. It's very hard to get into. And it's like, you need to show so much intent that you want to do this. And you're like, 
fuck, it's it's a very, very complex uh, situation. So the problem then is that people who've experienced the harshest things in life are the people who are the messiest. Yeah. Uh, in terms of their drug and alcohol use, they're the ones who really, really need to get in there the most. And they're the ones who are not going to be able to do those things that you're asking them to do. But they're the ones who need it the most. Definitely. Um, Chardon, you're a psychiatrist. Psychologist. Oh, psychologist even. Yeah. So often when people think about psychologists, they think about... Lying down on a sofa. Yeah. Oh, so I don't do that at all. Yeah. I'm interested in uh, how you design services, for example. So mm. if somebody says, well, you need to be drug and alcohol free for 10 days in order to get into the service. What I'm interested in is what do I know from psychology? And I go, yeah, OK, so what we know is this. And that's this is why it won't work. So I'm interested in how you take psychology and actually apply it on the ground, particularly in communities that don't have access to psychology. If that makes sense, no, it, it does. It makes, it does, yeah. it makes perfect Ecology sense. is something that like it costs a lot of money to go and see a, a service that involves that. Yeah, yeah. Like it's not something that you could be like. Do you know what? I'm going to ring my GP in the morning and book in for an appointment. Have a bad cough. You know, like oh, my head's all over the place. I'm going to go and see a psychologist. Or psych- well, I mean, there's there's waiting lists to see psychologists in the public system, and there's waiting lists to see psychologists in the private system. So we need more psychologists. Um, but not only do we need more psychologists, we need more diverse psychologists. So uh, I would love to see loads of working class psychologists, because if you're a young person and you go and you go in to meet somebody and you're sitting down and they're different. um, like, do you connect? And and there, I know loads of psychologists that are fabulous and they're not from working class communities and they're great with young people. They just can't get that connection. They can. Some of them can. But I also would like to see working class psychologists as well. And I remember when I was doing the drug related death project and I was in a in a house in um, Sean McDermott Street mm. and I was talking to um, a woman about her son and he's, his mental health had been very bad. And when he was young and she, I remember when we were sitting around the kitchen table, we were cursing and drinking tea. And she said to me, I think if he'd met someone like you, he would have been able to talk because he was, you know, he used to be not able to express himself without cursing and he'd be afraid then that people would judge him. And there are times when I worked with young people in the community, I've worked as a youth worker as well, where I'd bring a young person to a particular service, not always psychology, but sometimes different services. And we'd walk in the door and they'd be wearing a tracksuit and the pants would be tucked into the socks and you know that. And, and we'd walk in and I'd see somebody go, you know, looking them up and down. And I'd feel the young fella beside me straight away go like that, you know. And he go, they're all fucking snobby cunts in here. I'm not coming in here. And I go, oh, look, we're going in here now because these people are here to help you. But straight away. And then we go in and so they'd, they'd say, you know, you know, tell me a bit about yourself or whatever. And they'd say nothing. And then they might ask some questions. And I'd go out and they'd say, you know, oh, you know, what about your mother and father? Or where's your father? And I don't know. And then we go out and I go, come here. You do know where your father is, don't you? And go, yeah, but I'm not fucking telling her. I go, but if you don't tell her, she can't help you. Do you know what I mean? She needs to know all of this stuff. And they would, they just see this kind of cultural divide. And um, that doesn't mean that middle class psychologists can't work with working class. Of course they can. But I want, so if, if, if a working class young fella or girl wants to go in, that there's, there's different people. There's people who sound like me and look like me. Um, and as well as that, there are people, there, there are people in some jobs who have never walked through a working class community, have never been in a council house. So when they meet working class people and, you know, when you get a few, <laughs> a few of us together, in one, do you remember when we did that 
conference. Like, oh, Jesus. Yeah. But, which no one is a, a group and, and we're all there together and we're all talking at the same time. It can get a bit and the banter and all that kind of thing. There's some people who will find that a little bit scary. Do you know if you're cursing at me and saying, ah, go away, Sharon, you fuck off. And, them, yeah. and they're like, oh my God, he's cursing at Sharon. Yeah. And like, that's, you no, know, we're just having a conversation. Yeah. So, so that's why you need diversity is because if you work with people who are from different communities, you get to learn about that community and then you can serve that community better. If you know nothing about that community and you come in and you go, oh my God, they're roaring and shouting at each other. No, they're just actually having a conversation. Mm. Then you go, oh, okay. I remember like years ago, I was renting, I don't know, I was in my, uh, my early 20s and I was renting a, a room in a house and there was a German couple there. And I used to come in and I'd say, Jesus, they're always fighting. Because <laughs> <laughs> they'd be downstairs. Wah, 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 wah. But they weren't, they were just talking, just normal talking. But because of their accents, I thought they were always fighting. Mm. And it's the same when you go into, you know, the way we might talk to each other or whatever. It's just normal. But if you're not like that, you'd be going to look, what's going yeah. on there? Like, yeah, yeah, we were at a conference. That was funny. That was a great conference, wasn't it? It was actually. Do you want to just explain what it was and what it was about? So it was the probation services um, mm. had a conference and it was about podcasts and mental health. Mm. And they had... Yee. Us, the two Norries. The two Norries, Lynn Ruan and me. Yeah. And we were all on the stage. And that's the first time I've ever been on stage where every single person on the stage was working class. So often, I'll tell you why I loved that conference. Because often when I go to those conferences, they have people with lived experience on the stage. But you know what happens when you've lived experience? You're, you're rolled out and you're the dancing monkey. Yeah. So you've to, you're rolled out and you have to talk about everything that's great. And how and oh and I did this and I got over this and I but one of the things people don't want you to talk about is the stuff that was shit mm -hmm. and how hard it was to get to where you are and the barriers that continue continue to exist. But what I loved about that was <laughs> There was no one there to stop us. Yeah, there, yeah. there was no one cheering in it. <laughs> Me? Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. There was no one cheering in it. <laughs> you were encouraging it. Yeah. But, but I emailed them afterwards and I said, it was the first time that I've ever gone. And I spoke to James Leonard the next day and he said, you know what? He said, I'm really buzzing after that yesterday. And I said, I am too. And I said, why? And he said, because he said it was really honest. It wasn't just that, look at me, I'm great. Anyone can do this. Yeah. It was all the the horrible stuff as well. Yeah. I felt it was very conversational. I didn't feel like there was like, I'm not being disrespectful, I didn't feel like there was someone in charge. We didn't have to answer to somebody. Yeah. You know what I mean? And even the interaction you got from the audience. And like you're looking into the audience, you know a lot of faces there. And it's just bouncing and a flow. I brilliant. just laughed because I just remembered when you stood up to go to the toilet. I was bursting oh, to go yeah. to the toilet. <laughs> Couldn't hold it for anyone. I had to go, yeah. yeah. Um, and Lynn ran <laughs> in the middle of Lynn, Lynn was in the middle of talking and you just walked past it. She's like, where the fuck is he going? <laughs> yeah, and then when I went to the toilet and came back then, turned screwed. Yeah. And then, yeah. Um, but that's when you gave the results of your survey there about like, so there is a correlation with being poor and having poor mental health and trauma. And I remember thinking to myself, I know it sounds a bit bad, but it popped into my head like, you know the song by uh, P. Diddy and Biggie Smalls, more money, more problems. I was like, that's wrong. Scientifically, that's wrong. More money, less problems. <laughs> money is a protective, money is a protective. So you might still have some problems, but the difference is now you can pay to get it fixed. Hmm. So, you know, when you're talking about your friends saying, you know, 10 days to get in, if you have loads of money, you get in. You get in. Yeah. 
take you any whatever way you arrive, they'll take you. Mm. So money won't necessarily make you happy. But what it will do is it'll give you the opportunity to get the things that make you happy, to pay for the private therapy or the private addiction treatment. Mm. Get on a plane and go to another country and do your addiction treatment there. Whereas if you don't, you might have the same feelings and you might have, if you take, for example, you know, sexual abuse, one in four people in Ireland uh, have experienced sexual abuse. That's something that happens in every community. Domestic violence is something that happens in every community. So, so sometimes when you talk about trauma, they say, oh, trauma is something that happens in working class communities. It's not, it happens in every community. But if you've got a few bob in your pocket, you're going to be able to get the thing that you need to, f- to, fix that, it. to help you fix it yeah. an awful lot faster. And if you're somebody who's experienced, you know, something bad in your life and now you're in addition and, and you're in homelessness, the, the problem with that is you start to experience more traumas because, you know, if you're sleeping on the street, you might be assaulted. That's another trauma. So if I if I have money, that's not going to happen to me. There are people with addictions all over Ireland. And the ones who have a whole load of money are not the ones who are down begging outside mm-hmm. the train station. Because you're going to be able to keep them a bit safer and get them into different places. Well, I'll tell you an interesting one. Uh, Fantasizing about winning the lotto is good for your mental health. But winning the lotto is bad for your mental health. So they did it. They've done studies on this where they look at people who, you know, like I do this. Do you ever do this where like I look at the euro millions and say 60 million, I go, okay, and I buy this, this and this. Mm. And then I give that much to that charity and that much to that charity. So I have like down, I spend every single penny of it in my head. Right. So apparently that's good for your mental health, imagining that. But then what they did is they looked at people who had actually won it. And what they found was that their mental health wasn't great. Yeah, imagine the stress. I think I'd be different though. I'm going, isn't, I'm going to do the, oh no, I better be out in time because I was going to buy it in Dublin to make sure that a dub didn't win it. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to win it and I'm going to break the cycle of the millionaires with the bad mental health. I won't have bad mental health when I win the Euro millions. There'd be some stress though winning 60 million. Like you win 60 million bleeding people coming out of woodwork and all. You throw me a million quid there. And you'd... I'd give most of it away. Oh, You'd have to, wouldn't you, to keep yeah. people happy. She, like, what the fuck would you need what, 60 million? Oh, I don't want to. Like, imagine how many people would be on to you, be like, sort us out and you give them 50 grand, you'd be like, only 50 grand? I only believe like, in the oh, yoke. The bloke who won 183 million there, I don't know when I was, I saw it died recently. Yeah. But he'd spent 45 million. Like, how long did he have it for? He was spending 110 grand a week. Then. A week? Yeah. 110 grand a week he was spending, but he was bought everyone gaffs and all. He'd done it the right way. 110 you know grand I mean? a week, yeah. yeah. So he was what? spending. He was spending, what, 50 million a year? No, 40 well, he spent forty five altogether. Yeah, forty. He spent so forty five million of it. There is a as well about people like you know, like there is the stress of it. Like X amount of people go onto them from their family and just put the hand out, and then if you're gonna put, give them money, you have to give the other side of the family money, and it's like it's not worth it in the end. I'm saying, if no, you want it, if you want, worth it. if you want, it. I mean, trust me, if you want it, no, you tell people. Me, like, you tell people. You don't have to. Would I tell yeah. people? So remember, I thought if you if, if you, you don't go public. Do you take half the money off if you don't go public? No, I don't. You don't have. No, to go you don't. Public. You don't yeah, have anything. So, <laughs> so then I was like, "Why the fuck does anybody go public?" I know, yeah. So I couldn't understand that. Is that like they want people to know? 
Probably I don't know. Right. But like, I can't imagine like the stress. Like, I can't imagine there's more constant pros to win the lotto because someone's asking. I, I always Wait, say, but imagine like everyone in your family, then your extended family. Give them fucking money. They yeah, but then it. you. I know, but then like, right, where do you draw the line? You don't have to ask me for it. But I'm you, going to have you. You have money. all of these strange. Would you give me money, Terry, if you won the lotto? Obviously. If you won 100 million, much would you give me? A million. Is that all? Yeah, because if See, you see, this is starting already. Yeah, so you know, is yeah. starting already. And come here. Yeah, you know how much would you give? Jam. How would you how much would you give me? That's what I'm saying. Yeah, you say, oh, I, I, I've already met you twice, Sharon, sure, and I'm not giving you any money. Get you a coffee. Yeah, yeah, see. How much would you give your ma then? A million. And then Everyone I'd be going a million so me and your ma get the same amount of money. Oh, I like you more than me, ma. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but, but Molly Mess and Mara, I love you. Example, like, you know what I mean? Like, where do you draw the line? I always say I tell no one, but I'm not able. I don't, think, <laughs> I don't think that would be a thing. I don't think people would do that. I can't. Nobody, nobody I know personally would do that. Would go. You give him this, and, and I'm gonna get this. Terry, when yeah. you're doing a live show, where do you draw the line, and who gets tickets off, and who doesn't? That's what I draw that based off. <laughs> I have people ringing me. We do a live show, Sharon. Yeah. And I know. You're on stage at eight o'clock. But I think people that's are ringing different. me at half seven, who I haven't heard from in years, looking for tickets. And I'm like, imagine I had a hundred million in the bank. What would uh, you be doing? I don't, I don't they will. They different. would. They'd ring you. And they'd of course, say, they would, mate. They would. You have a hundred million. Would you they, ring they, someone? I personally wouldn't. Okay, I need that with I wouldn't give a bollocks. I'm not, I don't... I'd email you. <laughs> I would. <laughs> you get blocked. <laughs> I'd still try. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, no, I don't, uh, I don't think so. I don't think it's that deep. I need a new front door. Ah, I definitely need... is deep. When it comes to money, it's deep. It's deep. Yeah, yeah. All you have to do is look when somebody dies. Yeah, but you look when somebody dies and there's like 100 tours in a credit union going. Oh, there's and there's 100 people oh, fighting over you. Even yeah. if there's just a gaff there. Yeah. Oh, there's Just a gaff. When there's jewellery in a drawer that's worth nothing. I want that ring. Well, I want that ring. You don't, you're not even going to wear it. Yeah. yeah. And there's more to Yeah. Keep so, come here. I don't think you should win the I think I should though. I won't do the lotto anyway. Yeah, so I think it's so I don't get that as well. I don't people look if I won the lotto. When was the last time you done the lotto? About two years ago. Well, then you're not going to win it then, eh? I don't Probably think I've brilliant. ever done the lotto. I did it once years ago, about four years ago. When walk, but I'm so old. I re- I'll tell you how old I am. I remember when it started first. What? Oh, you are yeah. ancient, aren't you? I thought the lotto just always existed with the state. Oh, the excitement of it. And I remember somebody saying to me, Wait, there, he said to me, what would you do if you won the lotto? And I it said... It was probably about... Well, I tell you what I said. Back then, was well, I, I can't remember what it was. Ten shillings. Big. Go, <laughs> fuck off you. I, do you know what I said? I said I'd have strawberries and cream every day. <laughs> that doesn't sound bad to me. Yeah, strawberries. You, yeah, <laughs> strawberries and cream. You can't knock that. Strawberries used like, to. Like, would be, you stop eating kebab meals if you want? Strawberries oh, well, used to be much more. For a being a fiver, wouldn't you? But strawberries used to be way more expensive than they are now. They were like they only came out in the summertime as well. That's why we have so many obese people. You ever try and buy a pun at strawberries? Bro. It's like six fifty, and you can get a full large Big Mac meal for that price. Yeah, I'd rather the Big Mac meal to be honest. So. Yeah, sorry. Don't so know we we hit the stage of the podcast now. Yeah. Where we're just going to go off on tangents. Yeah, yeah. So this yeah. is what's going to happen. This is where talking bollocks comes into effect, Sharon. So sorry, fruit is too. So you know, as a psychologist, I'm very comfortable with silence. Hey, yeah. <laughs> yeah so if we just stop talking, which isn't great for a podcast. Like no. somebody told me that uh, we're only uncomfortable with silence because like films make make out that. So you know when you're in a lift and everyone's like looking, or everyone looks away in a lift in a film, like no one actually starts talking. They all just going, and you're like. It's to add to the fact that this is an awkward moment. Do you know, I think what's really interesting is when there is, you know, we'll say if I'm giving a talk and uh, somebody says any questions and, and then like the silence, especially with uh, students, there can be, 
if you go out to professionals that are working, they always have loads of questions. But when students come into first year first, they're like, I'm not wrong, man, asking questions for all these other people. So you're sitting there and you're like, any questions? No. It's total silence. So then I, because I'm okay with it, I'm just sitting there going. And then there will be somebody who just can't bear it any longer. And they'll ask a question. And I go, that's the person now. They're the, the rescuer. Yeah. They've jumped in to save me because they think I'm uncomfortable. And I think it's an interesting, it's just always interesting to watch because you often see people like that who jump in to, to, to rescue someone else, you know, they, they often do that too much and they feel under pressure to be, I have to help, I have to help, I have to help. And then that, that actually can't, isn't always good for you either. You know, when we used to talk about burnout before, we used to talk about burnout like, um, people who are doctors or nurses or people who work in homeless services that you're seeing these you know, tragic things all the time. And that has an impact on your mental health and you can reach burnout. But actually it's gotten to the stage now because of COVID and, and lots of different things, cost of living, finding it difficult to access services. There's a lot of people I meet that I'm talking to now and they're burnt out. Mm. And it has nothing got to do with the trauma of working on a frontline service. It's just got to do with life. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking about it a lot in, for the last few months and, and people are very angry. I see a lot of anger out there. A lot of anger. Fuck me, like so much anger out there. Yeah, and you see, I want to go back to the how you, you're thinking. When you get angry as well, when you get angry, your brain says danger. So when you're mad, you're not thinking properly. So like if somebody sent me a WhatsApp and I'm in bad form and I'm mad and it's, you know, oh, such and such thing happened. It might be true, right? Um. And if I'm, if I'm mad straight, I go, Jesus, quite another thing, blah, blah, blah. Whereas if I'm nice and relaxed and calm, I go, oh, I wonder if that's true, actually. And then I might Google it and I go, I can't find that anywhere else. Or, or actually, no, that, that's, that happened four years ago. That's not actually true. But if I'm mad, I won't. I could just go, that's another thing to go get mad about, you know. Mm -hmm. And, and when you're really angry, it's not good for you. It can make you physically sick. Because you're every time you get mad like that, you're you're releasing those stress hormones, which is bad for your immune system. Um, so you could get sick, you could get a chest infection, you know that kind of stuff. It's also bad for your mental health. So being angry all of the time is not good for you physically or mentally. There's loads of things that we should be really angry about. There's a thing called justifiable anger. I'm really angry that two people die, almost two people die every day in Ireland as a result of a drug and alcohol related death. There are people with mental health issues. It shouldn't happen. I'm angry about that. That's a justifiable anger. I'm angry about the amount of people I know who are experiencing a housing crisis. I'm angry about the amount of people I know who are on waiting lists to access various health services. That's a justifiable anger. But if I start getting angry at you and you, you lift it because you got a new car, well, now we're in a different space. It's not a justifiable anger. Mm. I'm, that's, I remember somebody saying to me once, focus on your own yoga mat. If I'm looking over there at what you have and not thinking about what I have and I'm getting mad about what you have, I'm not thinking about why, I'm, why am I in this situation in the first place. It's because of all of that stuff around power and social capital and access to education. And when we're really angry, we don't think properly and then we direct our anger in the wrong place. Sharon, are you constantly assessing people when you talk? No. No? Not at all. No. You know, when well, that's sarcastic, no, was it? No, I, I'm not, oh, honest no, to God, no. Right. No, I'm not, not at all. I, I do 
Why were you looking for an assessment there? No, I just feel like you're so observant of a lot of things and it's your job as well. So like you... I wouldn't be able to switch, switch that off. Why is psychologist doing I can't. I, no, you're right. Do you do that now when you're a podcast host? I know, yeah. I don't know what the crack is with me. <laughs> I, it's exa- I do think a lot and I don't think it's necessarily because I'm a psychologist. Now, being a psychologist doesn't help. But I know those people who are like not psychologists and they're like me mm. where they're always thinking, you know, what does that mean? But... What I uh, what I think I do is is if somebody says something to me and, you know, sometimes somebody will say something, I'd be really mad about it. And then I go away for an hour. I try to, it depends on the day. And I try to think about it. And then I go, have I thought about it in different ways? Um, This is a, a, a trick that they use in psychology, actually. So if you wanted to do an experiment in the morning, let's think of an experiment. Um... So if you said, Sharon, putting a Mentos into a bottle of Coca-Cola will cause this thing to happen, right? So the, somebody once thought of that. So if you hadn't done it, we haven't done that yet. We haven't put the Mentos into the Coca-Cola. So you come to me and you say, I think if you do that, this is what will happen. That's a hypothesis. Mm. So you've come up with a hypothesis and now you're going to test it. So then you you say, my hypothesis is that there's a chemical reaction between here and here and it'll cause the thing. So you put it in and it you proved your hypothesis right. So if I went to counselling and I said, uh, Terence doesn't like me. Because sometimes when I'm walking down the street and I salute him, he pretends he doesn't see me. And then the therapist might say to me, okay, that's a hypothesis. Is it true though? That this is the thing about being angry is looking for evidence. Yeah. So you say, what's the evidence? that he doesn't like you. Is there any other alternative hypothesis? Uh, actually, now that you see it, every time I walk past him, he's always on that side of the road. Maybe he's blind and he's left eye and he doesn't actually see me. And then what if I found out that that's true, actually? He's blind in his left eye and we, the, the reason why he suits me on a Monday and not on a Tuesday is because of where I'm meeting him on the road. So that's the thing about, one of the things that I learned, actually, about going to college is the constantly looking for what is... Am I absolutely certain that what I'm being told here is true? Yeah, you question it a lot more. And where is the evidence for it? A, a good one is, um, you know, people who have anxiety sometimes, you know, you might be in a relationship with somebody and, and they have very bad anxiety and you say, I'm going to be home at six o'clock and they're not home at six o'clock. And then by five past six in their head, you're dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, at three minutes past six you're having an affair and by five past six you're actually dead do you know what I mean it's gone so far so what you might say to that person is you know when those things come into your head just sit down and say what are the other things that could be true they're stopped they met so and so on the road and they're talking to them they missed the bus my clock is wrong mm. you know all of that kind of stuff so and then picking one of them and saying well where's the evidence for that so that's I suppose I don't analyze other people. I analyze my understanding of my reality because I can't control what anyone else does or what anyone else thinks. All I can do is control the impact it has on me. So there's loads of things that make me really mad. Now I have to control the impact of that on me or it'll make me sick. And there's people who'll be out marching on the streets for all sorts of things. And all they want is for life to be better for themselves and their family. And sometimes some of the things that they're told are not true. Sometimes some of the things that they're getting mad about are not things that are actually going to make a whole lot of difference in their lives anyway. But the things that actually will change their life 
is the, is the people in power. And it's about how do we get the energy around directing frustration in the right place? And how do we get a movement of people together that actually sees change? Do you know when he's out, Sharon? Because that went deep there. I'm nearly at the coin. I liked what you were saying outside that uh, you were playing the podcast to your kids. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> one of the things, I suppose, with my job is a lot of the stuff that I talk about is uh, kind of grim, you know, addiction, mental health, trauma. Um, so like, you know, I remember one day one of the kids came home from school and she said, my teacher said that she heard you on the radio yesterday. Why didn't you tell me you were on the radio? I, you know, because I want to hear you on the radio. But I, I, the stuff I was talking about, it's just not appropriate for for a small child. And I said, look, you know, the stuff that I do and blah, blah, blah. So they're like, where are you going? And I said, I'm, I'm going on on this podcast called The Talking Bollocks. And uh, uh, one of them said, oh, I heard him on the radio last week. And I played a little bit of, of one of your things. And I, I know that for you, and a lot of the times you've talked about barriers and that one of the things is an accent. And I often ask, I often, you know, if you talk about, we'll say people who are transgender or people who are black, I often think if you ask children questions around, I'm always interested in their answers. Um, and I said, I said, I played a bit of the start of one and uh, I said, uh, what did they, you know, what did they sound like in Irish? No, they didn't say working class or they're from Dublin or whatever, Irish. So like, would you say, you know, where they're from? Sure, how would I know where they're from? Somewhere in Ireland. And do they talk, like, is it, is, did they have an accent? Yeah, an Irish accent. So is it a good accent or a bad accent? Like, what do you mean, mom, a good accent or a bad accent? And I said, well, they're from Dublin. And I said, some people say that, you know, Dublin accent isn't nice. No, they just sound Irish. And I think that that's really interesting then. So at some point between when you're a young child and when you become an adult, the world around you tells you what's good and what's bad. Mm. It happens somewhere along that journey. And when I talked to them, I remember one day we were talking to a friend of mine who's a traveler and they went away and I said, uh, do, do you think there's anything different about her than me? No. Nah. They're like, why are you asking that? And I said, I'm just wondering, do you think that like sh she's different than me? And I went, her house is cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> And then the oldest one said to me, why are you asking that anyway? And I said, because she's a, she's a member of the traveling community. And she said, so? And I said, sometimes people would say that travelers are, are different. Do you know, that they look different or they sound different. And I said, I was just wondering if you thought they would. No. Which definitely the kitchen's way cleaner than our kitchen. That was it. That was the difference. Mm. And I thought it was really interesting yesterday as well when I said that, that they didn't hear a Dublin accent or a working class. They heard an Irish accent. Mm. And when they're in their 20s, society, hopefully it won't happen because you're going to change all that. <laughs> but there was, you know, there is people who, by the time they get to their 20s, go, oh, that, oh, oh yeah, I hear that. I reckon that's a working class accent. Why? Uh, one of you said this before, did you, about the burglar ads? You know what? There's, there's an ad on television for, for alarms. Someone said this to us. Yeah. It was, was it Lynn? No. I'm kind of obsessed okay, with Lynn. I remember now. Someone James, said this story to us. Jimmy. Yeah. So, you know, when you're listening to the radio, <clears throat> there's an ad that comes on for a security company. Mm. And yeah, I remember this. Who said that to us? I don't know. My head is wrecked now. And the burglars in the background. Yeah. And they have a common accent. A working class Dublin accent. Yeah. yeah. That's what happens. That's how prejudice and discrimination happens. Yeah. And it happens to working class people. It happens to black and brown people. It happens to travellers. 
is that you have very, very subtle messages in the world around you that says... This is bad. Oh, people who sound like that are dangerous. Mm. People who look like that are dangerous. People who think that thing are dangerous. And then it's slow, 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 slow until eventually you generalize it and you assume that everybody who looks like that or everybody who sounds like that and working class people do to people who are posh too. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Pe- working inverse, class. Or in, what do you call it? Inverse snobbery. Yeah. 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 Um, and I know like when communities become separated like that, what we see is differences and not our similarities, mm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That's just want to touch on. We don't want to play the victim card here. I know we're talking about all the discrepancies in the services towards working class people but like there is people who listen to this podcast and they're not from working class areas and what we're just trying to do is shine a light into what it's like for us and hopefully you can see where you've come from is more of a position of privilege Um, one episode that really sticks out in my mind was Ardle O'Hanlon's episode he came from a privileged background uh, a wealthy family a family who had positions and power and he lives here in Dublin not too far from here and he's one of the most down-to-earth people. He understands both sides of the divide. Mm-hmm. And he's able to transcend that himself. And he knows, he understands working-class people and the struggle. And he's aware of his own privilege. And yeah, that's all we're trying to do. We're just trying to acknowledge that. We're not saying, oh, you think you're better than us. Fuck you, you snob. Or we deserve all this because we're victims, whatever. We're just trying to unblur the lines. Just make it more clear and be like, look, this is what it was like for us. You acknowledge what it was like for you. And let's just get on with it and make this a better world. And it's sometimes, it's not that people are have a shitty attitude. It's just because they haven't walked the walk. So They're they, just unaware. Yeah, like the, the amount of people who don't know. Like there are people who do not know that there are, that you can use a carriage to pay for your electricity. Mm, mm. There's people who don't know that. Like the days when you used to have to top up your phone. Maybe you get 10 hour credit. That's what it's like with electricity. Well, you yeah? still get credit. Do you still get credit? Yeah. yeah. And when I I remember when uh, um, years ago, they used to, you used to, instead of having a card, it was you had to put money into the the meter in your, your thing. And the, we didn't have it in our house, but uh, I I knew people who had it and it's it's like ticks down and you're like, look, you go five minutes of electricity left. So you have to put it in And what, would someone come around and collect the money out of the box then? Yeah. 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 You can put a magnet on the meter as well to slow it down. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's all smart it's, it's not <laughs> that that's the thing is sometimes that when somebody says, um, you know, you talked about victimhood there, and it's, if if somebody starts saying it was difficult for me because, and if you immediately shut down and go, oh, here we go, then you're you're not prepared to be open to listen. Um, so every single one of us has bias. That's a normal human thing to do. I have biases. Yeah, towards cork, obviously. <laughs> so what I have to do is, is when somebody says something and if I immediately go somewhere in my head and I say, oh, I bet you they're like this or I bet you they're like that, then I have to say, you don't know yet because you haven't met them. And and when somebody's talking and they're saying, you know, such and such thing was difficult or, or such and such thing was a struggle, um, if I'm not prepared to listen and to be open, then I'm never going to be able to understand. And if we can't do that, we will become more and more divided, which is what what, what we see going on going on now. And there's loads of studies that have been done. I think a lot of them in the in the UK. Sometimes an assumption that people who are in working class communities are more racist. And actually, when they've done surveys in in other countries, and what they found is that people in working class communities were less racist. 
Um, so you'll know this from work in working class communities is you often do have a mix of people around you. Um, much more so than you might have in an estate that's very expensive, for example. Um, what happens is when you don't invest in communities and people become angry and people are stressed and they don't feel like they're heard and they don't know where to go to complain because they don't have any power to complain, is sometimes we can get, you know, a bit unsure about what the problem is and what it isn't. Mm, that's because you're competing. Yeah, and you're for resources. Yeah. I'm trying to survive, so it's survival of the fittest. Mm. So if you think someone's taking off your plate, you're going to speak up about it and take the action. Uh, Chardon, thanks for coming up. Um, really do appreciate it. Do I get a mug or a t-shirt or no? Where's that present? Your chick, oh, come here. I love you, I love you. Yeah. Chardon, uh, one thing I had to call out is yes, you have a Cork accent, but you're not from Cork. No, but I've been living in Cork for longer than I lived in Clare. But you know how I knew you weren't from Cork? How? Because you actually introduced yourself as Sharon Lambert and not, oh, you're from Cork. We know you're Sharon. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll wrap this one up. No, come here. <laughs> no, no. I'm going, to lose, I'm going to lose my passport in Cork because you've just um, told everyone in Cork that I forgot to start off with the, hi, I'm from Cork. Then. Yeah, the People's Republic. And they Cork. just started to accept me. <laughs> you've to live there for an awful long time before they let you, you, let, they let you have a Cork passport. Right, that's it. Episode 110. Take us out. Out there, Chris. Bill. Subscribe to this podcast for free on the Go Loud app. The Hip Knocker.